Amen. Well, good morning. Happy holidays. We're in Judges chapter 7. We're going to step back into our series on Gideon. It's so nice when you open the Bible first time right to the right spot. It's a gift of the Lord. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we honor your word as authoritative in our life, as a gift, a grace in our life. We ask that you'd use it today. Would you speak to us by your voice? Holy Spirit, we want a fresh filling, a fresh encounter with you. We thank you for pouring yourself out on us as we worship together as a family. We ask as we study your word together as a family that you continue to fill us, wash us. Lord, some of us came in with some things in our souls that um, we just need you to touch. We need you to heal. Some things even in our bodies, we need you to touch and heal, Lord. And so we celebrate you. We worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. There's a, um, a wide variety of stories about a, a young woman who history calls Saint Nino. Um, we know a few things about her life. The, the Eastern Orthodox tradition and the West, the Roman Catholic tradition, their stories don't line up perfectly about her life, but there's kind of a common consensus about a few things. We know she was born around 280 AD at Colossae, um, and we know that she um, journeyed into uh, Georgia to bring the gospel. This is Georgia, like next, next to Turkey, um, not uh, the Bulldogs, okay? Um, tradition says that at around the age of 12, uh, her parents who were Christians sold everything and moved to Jerusalem. And uh, her father eventually became a monk and kind of went out into the desert to live. And uh, she, she said that in her early years, she had a dream or some kind of vision. And the account of the dream or vision kind of varies. So we're not totally sure what happened. But in the dream or vision, she became convinced that she needed to bring the gospel into this region uh, in Georgia near Turkey. And so she's young and she's poor. And some tradition says she was a slave or like a indentured servant, like she owed money and was trying to work her way out. And she comes into this new region, this pagan territory with no churches. And she just starts preaching the gospel to like shepherds and kind of common people in the market. And she's seeing people come to faith. There are these stories of, um, as she's going throughout the cities, uh, she would walk past uh, temples and all of the, the pagans would be doing their rituals and their worship. And she would just be heartbroken and would just pray and cry out to the Lord. And it's just one single poor, possibly slave girl crying out to God that God would redeem this pagan nation. Just crying out, God, would you pour your spirit out on these people? Would they come to Jesus? Would they have a sincere encounter with the gospel of Christ? And, and so she's living in this country alone and just sincerely crying out to the Lord. Well, she lives in this garden, and one day the, a gardener comes by, and he and his wife, the story here isn't perfectly clear, either one or two things happened. Um, either he and his wife were uh, barren and could not have a child, and so she prayed for them, and they conceived. One tradition says that. The other side of the tradition says that they already had a child who was sick, and they asked her to pray for the sick child who was healed. Either way, we're not totally sure, but there was a gardener whose wife, they had a kid problem, and St. Nino prayed for them, and the problem was resolved. We could piece that together from history. And um, after the testimony starts going around that this gardener and his wife have received um, divine intervention as St. Nino prayed, 
the queen of the region, who everyone knew had been sick for years, decided that she was going to go and have St. Nino pray for her. So St. Nino, um, as the queen, now put this in context, right? Slave girl knows no one, preaching the gospel, standing in front of pagan temples going, God, I don't know how you could do it. I don't know what's, what's in your heart, but I'm just asking that you would redeem this nation and that these pagan temples would fall. Just one slave girl. She prays for a gardener's wife, and now all of a sudden, here comes the queen. So the queen comes and says, I've got this ailment. I'm, I want you to pray for me. And the, the story goes that she just kind of confidently prays for the queen. She says to the queen, look, I can't heal, but, but Jesus heals. And so let me pray. And we'll just believe the spirit of God to heal you. And the queen is healed. Our story goes that the queen goes home whole and her husband, who's been raised in paganism, he's still a skeptic and he doesn't want anything to do with this queen's newfound Christianity. She's given her heart to Jesus. So the king goes on for some time and uh, just kind of ignores his now religious wife. This 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 story is pretty clear that um, he was out hunting one day and he said that a great cloud of darkness fell upon him in the middle of the day and that he couldn't see. Historians are trying to go back and forth of, did he go blind or was there a literal cloud that covered him? But he's standing in pitch black darkness in the middle of the day as he's hunting. And so he begins to cry and he begins to pray, Lord, he starts praying, God of Nino, if you would, if you would deliver me from this situation, give me sight, I'd serve you for the rest of my life. God of Nino, if you would deliver me, I would belong to you. And immediately the cloud lifts, the man gains his sight. And all of a sudden what we have now is a poor foreign slave girl alone who's prayed for a gardener's wife and then prayed for the queen. And now the king is in this awful moment crying out to the God of Nino. And when the king comes back, he meets with Nino and they decide that in Georgia, they're going to build the first church. This is the era of Constantine. So they write to Constantine and they ask for bishops to come from, from Rome so that they could teach them the gospel and teach them the scriptures. So many times we get caught in these thought patterns that what God needs is for us to have better strategy. What God needs is better looking preachers, smarter preachers. If our churches had better singers, like if we, if we could map out our city on a little grid and we could all take one portion and we could somehow maneuver strategize on how we could reach this region then god could use us and sometimes all god needs is one poor slave girl john wesley's one of his famous quotes i love john wesley said give me a hundred preachers who fear nothing but sin desire nothing but god and i care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen such alone shall shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. What, what John Wesley was saying was, I don't care if they're ordained or if they're farmers. Just they fear nothing but sin and want nothing but God. A hundred men. What we'll read today um, is Gideon preparing for war with the Midianites. And, and, and God saying to Gideon, I don't need more men. I don't need more strategy. If I allow you to go to war with lots of men and lots of soldiers, you'll think that your victory is because you guys are great warriors. 
You men who are just hiding in caves will walk out with your chest poked out and think all of a sudden you're sticking David's mighty men. And God says, this victory will come because of me, by me, because of me, and I'll receive the glory. Therefore, send your soldiers home. Now, let me read you the text, and I'll lay out the narrative for you, and we'll do our best to try to draw away what the Spirit of the Lord would have us for today. Pastor Brad, do you have some tissues close by? I don't know if you, you know this, but it's like sticking Antarctica. These Florida bones weren't made for this northern weather. My wife says all the time, forgive me. My wife says, this is as far north as I'll ever live. She's from South Louisiana. This is north for us. Now, why are we talking about Go back to the text, okay? Judges chapter 7, you sinners. 7, 1 through 8. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people were with him. They rose early in the morning, and they encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hills of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others, every man go to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but he retained 300 men and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now, let me just kind of jog your memory for a second and reset the scene. I know it's been a whole seven days since we looked at it last. The Midianites and the Amalekites are native to Canaan, and Israel was supposed to drive them out during the Canaanite conquest under Joshua. But in this era, this era is called the era of the judges. Um, these these judges, shoot, I'm going to get off off record already. Um, these judges are kind of prophetic warriors who are bringing justice to Israel. I was reading C.S. Lewis this week uh, on the Psalms, and he was talking about how in the Hebraic mind, so many times in the Psalms, the psalmist is crying out for justice. God, we want your justice. In these court scene settings, they're praying, God, give us justice. But C.S. Lewis was drawing out, but to the New Testament mind, we're praying the exact opposite. God, give us mercy. We don't want justice. Because in the New Testament mind, the New Testament reader, we're thinking about the, the courtroom of God in the sense of a criminal case. Like, I'm the criminal, God's the judge, I'm asking for mercy from you. And that's a very appropriate way to, to think. And we want God's mercy um, as it regards to our sin and our guilt. But in the Hebraic mind, when they're praying for God's justice, they're not praying for God's justice in this kind of criminal ca- case. 
but they're praying for God's justice in this kind of social case, in the sense that this man has stolen my land. I need justice against him. And so they're praying this, this, you know, the widow who comes to Jesus or comes to the, Jesus tells the story of the widow who comes to the unjust judge. She's been robbed. She's been stolen from. So she's asking for the judge to give her justice. Now it's in that context that these men that we're studying, getting, they're called judges because they're bringing justice to the Israelites who Midian is stealing their food. The Midianites are stealing all of their wealth, they're stealing all of their cattle. And so there's an injustice that's taking place in the earth. Are you following me? And so God, to bring justice to the injustice, he raises up a prophet who the scripture calls the judge. And so the judge is going to bring justice to Israel by bringing judgment to the Midianites and the Amalekites who are stealing their resources. And so what's happening again in the day is the Israelites, they're hiding in caves. Gideon's found hiding in a wine press because the Midianites are coming down like locusts. Just thousands of them are sweeping down over Israel, stealing all of their food. And the Israelites are growing weary, hungry, tired. So finally they start to pray. That doesn't tell you something about humanity. I don't know what does. In this rock bottom situation, they cry out to God. And God sends the angel of the Lord, maybe a theophany or even a Christophany. Maybe this is Jesus appearing before the incarnation to Gideon, finds Gideon hiding in a wine press and says to Gideon, you're going to be the judge. I'm going to use you to judge the Midianites and the Malachites and to bring justice to Israel. Israel will no longer raise crops and then hide in caves because oppressors come to steal from them. You're going to bring justice through me. You with me so far? So first, God told Gideon, before we deal with your enemies, we're going to deal with your idols. Go and tear down the idol of Baal and Asherah at your father's house. Second, Gideon blew the trumpet, and Israel began to gather, preparing for war. And you remember in this moment when Gideon rolls the crowds together, we read last week that Gideon starts to get nervous. So he starts to do this fleece thing. God, I'll put out this wool fleece. If the ground's wet in the morning and dry, and the fleece is dry, then I'll know that you called me. If the ground's dry and the fleece is wet, then I'll know that you called me. We read last week that God just patiently keeps affirming Gideon in his insecurity. Every time Gideon gets nervous in the night and cries out, God just brings affirmation. I've still called you. You're still my son. And that teaches us something about the patience and the mercy of God that, that is worth clapping about. Okay, so today, you, you guys kind of following me? Today, we find ourselves with the Midianites camped in the valley with the Amalekites and Gideon organizing his camp um, uh, around the spring called Harath. Now, there are several things we want to notice right away. The scripture tells us as you read through chapter 8 that the Midianites are about 135,000, okay? We have 135,000 men, soldiers, camped in the valley. And we learn from the scriptures that Gideon, at this point, is about 33,000. Now, I don't know if you're good at math, but that's to say that the Midianites have about four times as many people as the Israelites. Um, I also don't know if you've ever been in a fight, but I'm not looking to fight four-on-one. One-on-one, I got you, okay? I've watched too much wrestling in my life to not get at least a couple elbows in. Um, Four-on-one, we're going to see how fast Caleb can run. Um, So the enemy's camped in a valley, in a low place. So Gideon 
using great strategy and wisdom, he brings his soldiers up to the high ground. And he camps them. That you, We get that makes sense, right? You don't want low ground. You want high ground. And he establishes his camp around a spring. Now, that makes sense, too, because how many fights go straight to one uh, army trying to essentially choke out the resources and supplies of another? So Gideon, the first thing he does, he says, we're going to take high ground and we're going to establish water. We're going to make sure we have water. So early in the morning, they rise up. The soldiers are following Gideon's leadership. And Gideon establishes camp. High ground, we've got water. But now Gideon has 33,000 men around him. And they're looking out over the valley at 135. And you can imagine what any man in the room would be doing. He'd be going, first I need more people. This is going to be a hard fight. We need more men. He's just kind of plotting and scheming. We need more. And God says something like only God says. It's about the moment Gideon says, I need more men. God says, we need less men. And God says, we need less men because if you go to battle like this and I give you the victory, you'll boast and say, look how strong I am. And God is saying, I'm going to give you victory, but in the victory, I'm going to get the glory. I'm going to be the one who receives all honor. Now, I've thought about this so much, so I need you to give me like four minutes to explain what I think is happening in the text. God is jealous for glory. We know that. God, God wants all worship. Idolatry, he's not about it. He's, he's not about um, uh, idolizing our own selves, our own strength. God wants glory. But God wants glory, one, because it's due him and right, and two, because it's only in relationship with God where I acknowledge that all good things come from him that I can even be satisfied or whole or healthy. Adam in the garden was supposed to live so reliant upon the Father, so free and light, right? Like if I'm going to battle with my own strength, then I'm stressing, biting my nails, fearful. But if I'm going to battle like David and I say, you come to me with a sword, a spear, a javelin, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And David just slings the rock and takes down Goliath because David has a confidence and rest in this truth. I'm not fighting right now. God is. And and so in the relationship which says God gets all glory, I also get rest and lightness, freedom. And, and, And God is saying to Gideon, I don't want you boasting in yourself because I'm the one who gets the glory, number one. And number two, I'm actually trying to establish humanity again in Eden where humanity learns to trust and rest in my goodness and my provision, and they get to live with a light, easy yoke, Jesus says. Are you guys following that train of thought? Let me say this. Maybe a year ago now, we, um, do you guys know that uh, we used to live on Hilton Head in a townhouse, and my in-laws lived in the townhouse next to us. So we moved off to Bluffton because we had, I don't know if you know this, but like 85 more kids, and we needed a little more space. And so we bought a big house, my, my, me and my wife and my in-laws together, we bought a big house, and we're going to kind of do an in-law suite for them. You know what I'm trying to say? Um, and so we all moved in, and then we're getting ready to do the in-law suite, and um, the contractor came by, and they posted on the door, uh, what do you call that, Brad? You know, like 
A permit. Yeah, they put the permit on the door. Brad's a genius. Um, and so we come home, and the permit's posted on the door, and one of the kids in the car says, are we getting evicted? And I giggled. I thought it was funny. And then immediately, I'm, I'm also kind of frustrated because I'm going like, do you think if there was a chance we were going to get evicted that I wouldn't be working three jobs? The, to be concerned about the welfare of our home and the financial stability of the home, to carry that pressure is my unique responsibility. It's not healthy or right for my children to walk around fearful of whether or not we're getting evicted. That's, that's a fear and a stress and a pressure that they were not designed to carry. I was designed to carry it. And so some of you live your whole lives before God worrying about the things that God says, that's my responsibility to worry about. And you're living in fear and anxiety and stress that I never called for you to worry about. And so that's what's happening here in the text. Gideon is gathering his soldiers, preparing battle, and God says to Gideon, if I let you go to battle like this, you'll think it's your battle, and it's not. It's my battle. So God says to Gideon, let's trim it back, big boy. You want more people? We're going to do a little less. And the first thing he does is really interesting because it's actually um, a scriptural principle that we find in Deuteronomy. So Israel at this point is 33,000 against 135,000. And the first thing God does is he says to Gideon, tell the Israelites, all of them that are afraid, they can go home. Now that's, that's kind of a strange thought, but we actually find it in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 7 through 8, where Moses says this to Israel. He says, is there any man become engaged to a woman and not married her? Let him leave and return home. So we're talking about rules for warfare. So when Israel gathers to go to battle, God says through Moses, if you have a young guy that's engaged to be married and hasn't been married yet, let him go home and get married to his wife. Let him leave and return home. Otherwise, he may die in battle and another man marry her. So, so young men who are engaged, you don't have to fight. We want you to go home and enjoy your wife. God's so gracious. Hallelujah. Next, follow me to the next verse. If you got it. Do you got it back there? The officers will continue to address the army and say, is there any man? So first, if you're engaged, go home. Second, Moses tells Israel that the officers should address the army and say, is there any man who is afraid or cowardly? Let him leave and return home so that his brothers won't lose heart as he did. So that's significant. What we just found is that God actually doesn't want, definitely doesn't need, but he doesn't want men in his army who are afraid or cowardly. One, because they're carrying pressure that's not theirs to carry. Two, because their fear and cowardice is contagious. You catch that? He says, don't, don't, don't let them fight because they're going to spread their fear to their brothers. So God says to Gideon, follow the law, Gideon. Do what I told Moses to do. And Gideon goes before his 33,000 soldiers and says, every man who's afraid, I want you to go home. Now look, it's one to four. They're standing, looking at 135,000 men. Anyone who is logical and rational and heavy burdened would be afraid. Only those who have learned to live light in the rest of the Father can stand with confidence and go, eh, with David, right? Sword, javelin, spear. Let's see how this shakes out. There, there's a lightness and a confidence and, and not a reckless, like, 16-year-old driving too fast. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, that reckless, you're just stupid. 
but, but there's a, a, a light, confident, yeah, let's do this, in the 10,000 men that are left. So we go from 33,000 to 10,000. Now, again, I don't know if you're good at math, but now we're about 1 to 13, okay? One Israelite soldier for 13 Midianites. I, not for me, okay? Not for me. And so next, God says to Gideon, okay, there's still too many. One to 13, those odds, pretty impossible, but, but you guys are also pretty arrogant. You probably still would shake that out in your head that you did it. So we're going we're gonna to trim back the fat one more time, Gideon. Now, what he says to Gideon here, scholars really struggle with because the way the Hebrew reads, um, there's not always punctuation or, uh, so scholars have to make some decisions about the way the Hebrew reads. So they, they go back and forth on what's meant by men who lapped water by, uh, by, like a dog. But the, the conclusion is the same. So we'll, we'll just kind of jump to the conclusion. Um, what, what, what happened here is God said, go to the brook and all the men who get down on their knees and drink water. Now, whether they got down on their knees and put their head to the water and drank, or whether they got down on their knees and scooped water to drink, he said, all of those men who get down on their knees, send them home. God says, I only want the men. Now, gosh, I'm, I feel old and fat. I don't want to do this. God, God says, I only want the men who kind of crouch like this and, and lap from their hand. Now, the men that crouch like this are, their, their heads are up. So they're aware of what's their surroundings. They, they're, they're vigilant, aware of the enemy, watchers. They're also not, this is, this is interesting, they're also not mostly concerned with being refreshed by the water. Do you guys know what I mean by that? Like some of you guys get stressed and anxious, and the first thing you want to, I'm, I'm this way, the first thing you want to do is go eat a big meal and lay in bed, right? It's like in, in stressful moments, you'll turn to things to try to kind of panically refresh yourself. But these men, they're getting less water, and their heads are up, watching for the enemy, also kind of like expectantly ready to fight. So they're, they're not the cowards that left in the first batch, but they are watchers, aware of the enemy. Not only aware of the enemy, but, but ready to fight the enemy. So they're vigilant with their attention, their heads being up, but they're also um, prepared, thoughtful, I want to suggest that there's a good chance that they've been trained, that these 300 men have been taught. You guys, this is probably a stupid analogy, but um, maybe it's not. I don't know. What do I know? Um, when I remember as a kid, we would go, like, in deep south, we would, uh, the older men would always take us squirrel hunting on, like, Christmas or something. I don't know if that's a tradition or not, but that's what we did. We went squirrel hunting, and the older men would always fuss at us about the way we were carrying our little 410s. Okay, there, there, was, there was a way they wanted us to carry our 410 or our little 20 gauge in case we tripped, right? In case the gun went off. They were very like, pop you in the head if you ever did this or, you know what I'm saying? It, it seems like some older wise men have taught these guys that when you go to battle, don't turn your back on your enemy. Keep your head up. And, and, and that is wildly interesting because what we're finding throughout the entirety of this narrative is, again, God doesn't need anyone. He could, and at times in Scripture, he does, just 
rain down fire on the Midianites and the Melkites. I don't know if you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he didn't need any soldiers. Okay, just, just handled that. He, he could just rain down fire and destroy the enemies of Israel. But for some reason, he delights in allowing some of his children to participate in the work. But there are a couple requirements concerning what kind of heart they are to have to be used. One of the, one of the interesting things, that, I don't know if I mentioned this already, about the, um, about the well where they're camped called Harad, is that the word Harad in, in, in Hebrew, it means to tremble or to shake. So there's a, there's a spring where the, the, the soldiers gather and they tremble and shake with fear. God says, okay, I love you, Israelites. I love you, young men who are biting your nails and nervous, but why don't you just go home, Bubba? And then God says to the other ones who were unaware, unprepared, unwatchful, you two, just, just go ahead and go home. I'm going to handle business. But there's a select minority of people in which I'm going to use to accomplish what I want to accomplish. Now, from here, I want to suggest that I think God is calling us to be the 300 at the spring called trembling, not the 32,700 who got sent home. Right? Like, I want to live my life in God in such a way that when God's getting ready to move in the earth, he says, I, I can use that one. When God's eyes look out, I don't want to be in the crowd of men dismissed to go home. Yes, fully loved by the Father, but also wonderfully unuseful. So, so when, we, when we ponder a little further, what are the qualifications to being in the 300? What are the qualifications to being one of the 300 and not being one of the 32, whatever, 3,000 sent home? The, the biggest qualification, and I could probably talk about this for an hour, the biggest qualification is that you've learned to rest in the Father. The last thing the church in America needs is men and women leading her who feel like everything that's fruitful or everything that, that's prosperous is because of their great wisdom and intellect. And that they're also, man, I've been around and, and I've, I've done this. Just listen, I know I'm yakking. I've done this. I've, I've begun to put pressure on myself to see spiritual fruit in my family or in our church. If our church isn't growing or isn't prospering, if we're not reaching people, I start to think it's my fault. And if it's my fault, then that must mean I'm the one doing it. And when I slide into this posture where I'm nervous and anxious and stressed because I think enough fruit's not being born because I haven't done enough and I need to lead better and I need to read more books and I need to call some mentors and have them talk through what's happening in the life of the church and what I could do better, and the church isn't prospering because of me, then I put myself in a position that God never called me to walk in. Jesus just keeps saying, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I see, what I hear the Father saying. In other words, Jesus is saying, sometimes I don't say anything, and I don't do anything. And I don't wake up earlier in the morning so that I can get more done because God really needs me. Jesus is saying, I just kind of simply lean into the Father. It's it's so counterproductive because I don't know if you know anything about like Western society, but we do this thing where we're like, we need to 
the, the, those who sweat the most get the most. And there's some truth to that. Like hard work bears good fruit. But that doesn't always relate in the spiritual realm. Sometimes those who rest the most get the most. Like rest in God's goodness. Now think about this, if you will. If St. Nino was like some of you in the room, um, when the gardener came and said, I can't have a baby, or my baby's really sick, would you pray for me? Some of us Christians in the room would have got so nervous and anxious. What if God doesn't heal? What if God doesn't come through? What if I'm not, what if I'm not good enough or anointed enough for God to use? And some of you would have never prayed for the gardener. And if Nino never prayed for the gardener, then she would have never prayed for the queen. And if she never prayed for the queen, then the king would have never came to faith. And if the king never came to faith, then the church wouldn't have been built in the hour that it was built in Georgia. There's this weird ladder of events that begins with a young slave girl having a confidence and rest in God. Are you following me? The confidence to say, ah, I can't promise you anything. I'm not saying that God always heals people when I pray, but come on, let's do it. And some of us need to simply begin to conquer those little fears. Because you're unuseful to God because you think that you've got to earn sweat out. If I sweat more, if I pray more, if I wake up and fast longer, maybe God can use me. And it's very likely that God's saying, if, if you would ever begin to really believe the, the amount of like radical, eternal, wild love that I have for you, like my eyes are so set on you, I never leave or forsake you. If you really believe the Spirit of God dwells in you on your worst days, you wouldn't be walking away from opportunities to minister. You would just step in with a kind of simple confidence. And I love to be around, you guys know, I didn't grow up in a home with my biological father. I grew up uh, with a stepfather who, who worked hard. He was a hardworking man. Um, but I didn't get the, the natural confidence that a biological father can instill in their son. But I love to watch a son who knows that his dad loves him. Because there's a, a lightness and a freedom that I ain't never experienced. Like just the confidence. And, and God is asking us in this hour, in order to be part of the 300, it's, God didn't say, you know what I want, Gideon? I want everyone to do push-ups. And whoever can do the most push-ups, those top 300, those are the ones I want. God says to Gideon, the ones that I want are the ones that have the kind of light, almost giddiness of life. They says, let's go, let's do it. They have faith and not fear. So then we can begin to ponder, like, if God wants light people, you guys know what I mean by light? Like, not so burdened down and nervous and anxious, but just the easy and, and, and light yoke, just happy, joyful, let's do it people. If God wants light people who are people of faith, then we need to, one, consider, how do I enter into lightness? You guys follow me? How do I enter into this kind of rest? Two, how do I cause my faith to prosper and grow? We see in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, the idea of the gift of faith and the spiritual gift of faith. We believe the spirit deposits upon a person as we get ready to pray for a sick person or believe for a miracle. And it's a divinely deposited, like supernatural faith, confidence that just rests upon you. Have any of you ever experienced that? Like maybe once in my life that I feel like I had a gift of faith where I just knew that God was going to move. But on the other hand, there is just a natural, developed, matured faith that we can actively grow in. We can actively grow in 
faith largely by baptizing ourselves in the stories of God. And so the scriptures talk about being washed by the water of the word. When, when I, I think the 300 men who were standing there had washed themselves in the stories of Joshua and of Moses and of Abraham. And they're just, you know, as the situation rises that could bring fear, rather than responding in fear, they respond in faith because there's a remembrance that they've built up. And so, uh, one, we need to learn to grow in lightness, kind of joyful, jubilant, let's get after it. Who cares if we fail? That's, that's lightness. I don't really care. Let's just grow. We used to say around here all the time, uh, when the church was much smaller and we felt like we need to get things going, I used to always say, just swing the bat. Who cares if you strike out? You're not going to hit the ball until you swing. And what we meant by that is like, let's go do an outreach. Let's go down by the beach and share the gospel. Let's go try to go to an apartment complex and talk to people about Jesus. Who cares if no one gets healed? At least we tried something. And that's a, that's a lightness that we're growing in. Then we've got to grow in a faith and a confidence that we grow in by baptizing ourselves in the story of God. I, it's one of the reasons I like to read uh, and, and tell you biographies of saints and the way that God used them. One of the reasons I like to uh, kind of bathe myself in stories of great revivals and the way that God moved, because it, it, it builds in your heart a confidence that you do not have otherwise. There is a discipline that you can practice that will produce in you greater measures of faith and make you more useful to God. The discipline is remembrance. Telling yourself. Some of you guys, your mom or your grandma came to faith so radically, right? Like you, they were maybe practicing witchcraft or they were, they were a Buddhist. And then they, they encountered Jesus on the street in the 70s and they got healed and their life was radically transformed. And you haven't thought about that in 10 years. You need to start thinking about that. And, and third, so we're growing in rest. We're, we can grow in faith. And then we're gonna, we want to grow in this kind of watchful, vigilant preparedness. Now, this is interesting because, again, with their heads up, they're watching for the enemy. You could perceive that as being nervous, but they're not just watching for the enemy expecting to be attacked. They're in a posture that says, poke your head up around that corner. I'm going to take it off. That, that, do you catch that posture? It's, it's not just a, oh, I'm nervous about someone coming around the corner. It's, it's like a hunter with his, with his rifle aimed, hoping that the buck comes around the corner. And, and so God is looking for a people, I think, a church that is watchful in the sense that we are very aware that we have an enemy. We, we pray and we, we recognize that this enemy wants to deceive us. He wants to create dissension. He wants to create bitterness. He wants to tempt us. We're aware of this enemy. We're not afraid of him, but aware of him. And we're also ready to go to battle with him. So God's looking for a people who would say, yes, there's an enemy. I'm not trembling with fear. I'm watchful in prayer. Some grandmas need to get up in the night and pray for your grandchildren. When the, when the spirit awakens you and they come to your mind, it's very likely that God's tapping you on the shoulders and saying, the enemy is coming after your kids. You need to get your butt up and start praying. There's a watchfulness, but there's also a preparedness for the fight. So we talked about this a couple of Wednesdays ago. Um, if you're the kind of person that's afraid to pray out loud, um, and I get that, man, my wife doesn't, she's not a big, like, you know, she doesn't like the microphone. She doesn't really like to, she's just, she's not big on that. Um, but if you never cross the line of, of fear into, 
I'll pray for whoever comes my way. You're going to miss so many opportunities. Because maybe, maybe when you get, you know, you sit down at the coffee shop and somebody sits down and starts yakking and they start talking to you about the way that their marriage is falling apart. Like maybe that's the Holy Ghost. And maybe the Holy Ghost wants to minister healing into that marriage as you pray and as you kind of come to him and bring the spirit into the situation. But there has to be a preparedness in your heart. And so then we could ask the question, if we can grow in faith through remembering and sharing testimony and reminding our hearts, then maybe we could grow in preparedness through, I don't know, like practicing praying for one another, like um, practicing sharing our faith, reading some books on evangelism, like leaning in. At some point, you've got to have the lightness. Man, I was in a situation this week. It was maybe the first time in a while where I share, was sharing the gospel, sharing my faith, and I didn't have that, you know, the feeling in your stomach where you're just kind of uncomfortable. And, and when I walked away from the situation, I realized that I had, I had come to a place where I could share the gospel with lightness, without fear. And I didn't really care if the person spit on me or thought I was stupid. Um, I am stupid, so it's all right. Um, lightness, faith, and a preparedness to share a preparedness to pray, a preparedness to, to even serve, to, to get up and, and go do something for somebody just to show the compassion and love of Jesus. These are the unique 300 type people that God's looking for to use. God loves all of Israel, but he's only going to use a few. And if you're with me, and I think you are, or you would just say like, I don't know. I don't want to live a life that's just about me being comfortable. I don't want to live a life that's crippled by fear. I don't want to live a life that's heavy and anxious and burdened. I want to just have like a light, jubilant, let's get after it attitude. And I want to be used by God. Then, then I think we need to lean into Father's care for us. We need to really rehearse God's stories of redemption, and deliverance, and baptize ourselves in his goodness and remembrance. And we need to be prepared. Just grow in preparedness. If you never shared your faith, man, get a book on evangelism. Get the stinking evangelism explosion. That stuff's still good. Still works. And just, just start preparing your heart for an hour. Maybe, maybe there's an hour coming where God's really wanting to use us. I want to be ready for it. I don't want to be dismissed at the spring of trembling. Worship team, if you come. Desiree, I think if you come for me. If you go ahead and stand to your feet if you'd like.